Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. On April 18, 1942, 16 B-25 bombers manned by 80 airmen took off from the aircraft carrier USS Hornet. Their mission, which was extremely dangerous, was to bomb Japanese military and industrial targets in retaliation for that nation's attack on Pearl Harbor the previous December. Lieutenant Colonel James Jimmy Doolittle, who was later promoted to general, a well-known aviation pioneer, was chosen to lead that mission, which ultimately boosted morale in the United States and forced Japan into a more defensive strategy. In this episode, we will be speaking with Doolittle's granddaughter, Jana Doolittle Hoppus, who will share stories about her grandfather's early years, education, his contribution to early aviation, and his war experiences, which included receiving the Medal of Honor from President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Jana, who is an author and educator, will also tell us what it was like growing up as a grandchild of General Doolittle and his wife, Josephine. I'd now like to welcome Jana Doolittle Hoppus to our show. Welcome, Jana. Thank you, James. I'm looking forward to today. Terrific. Jana, I'd like to start by asking you, where were you born and raised? Actually, I was born in Sendai, Japan. My father was an Air Force officer, and I grew up pretty much all over. Did you really? So what are some of those places that you lived? Oh, well, right after high school, we had the hardship tour in, in Madrid, Spain. Um, I, I've lived in Kansas, lived in Michigan. I always come back to California, though. I kind of feel like I'm a California girl by heart. How is that moving around? My daughter married an Air Force officer and they moved around a bit. Uh, he's no longer in the Air Force, so they live here in New Jersey. But you did that as a, as a kid. From your perspective, what was it like moving around a lot? You know, a lot of it had to do with my mom. She had the ability to make life an adventure. And so it was never where were you leaving? It's where are you going to go next? But the thing about the Air Force is it's a very small community, really. And any base you go on, if you're a kid, you know people that, that you've known from before, you meet new people, everybody's been the new kid. You're just one small community. And it's, it's a pretty special lifestyle. I really enjoyed it. That's good. So you really got to meet a lot of people and see a lot of places. It was great fun. Jonna, in your book, Calculated Risk, The Extraordinary Life of Jimmy Doolittle, aviation pioneer and World War II hero, you write in the introduction that when you were growing up, when you were a kid, you weren't really that much aware of how famous your grandfather was and your grandmother. They were pretty much granny and gramps to you. And their home, which you called Doolittle Central, was a place of unconditional love. What was it like growing up in that environment and visiting Doolittle Central? And what are some of your fondest memories? Well, you think about it. As an Air Force brat, you're living all over the country in different places. So the one place that became our route, the one place that was our, our home base was my grandparents' home. They lived in Santa Monica, California. And it was a place of laughter. My grandfather was, um, oh, he was an incredible card. He had these 
the way of making you laugh. In fact, I can tell you when he passed away, my daughters had the opportunity to know him. One was a freshman in high school. One was, was in middle school. And I asked them, I said, what do you remember about Gramps most? He was fun. He played with us. He made us laugh. And that's kind of what I grew up with. You knew that there was something special about him because if you went out, people would come up to the table, they'd want to talk, they'd want pictures, they'd want something like that. So you knew there was that element about it, but to us, he was just Gramps. And my grandmother, I mean, I adored my grandfather, but I worshiped my grandmother. She was a pretty incredible woman. So it was a home full of laughter. It was a place of respect. If I had a question, in fact, I went to Westlake School for Girls for a while when I was in high school, and I would spend weekends with my grandmother, and I could talk to both of them about anything. And I can remember having some monumental problem, uh, some earth-shattering problem, and I wanted to talk to my grandfather. So he said, yeah, sure, come back in his office. He had a home office, and he sat down on one side of the desk and had me sit down on the other and I started to talk to him and he says, wait a minute. He pulls out his hearing aids, turn them off, turns them off and sets them in the, the center of the desk. And he goes, okay, shoot. <laughs> I just started laughing. I don't remember what my problem was, but I remember his ability to lighten things up and his ability to listen. If there was something I needed to talk about, I could talk to him about anything. And of course that was true of my grandmother and, and of my parents. I was pretty fortunate. Oh, how neat is that? So did you have family events there? Did you do holidays there? We did a lot of Christmases there. We would come back for Christmas. And I mean, as I said, I was very close to my grandmother. So I was the kid that came out and spent part of most summers with her. I would stay with them. And then when I came back from Europe after college, I actually spent almost every day with my grandmother. I acted sort of as an assistant to her sometimes when my grandfather was gone. So it was an ability to really have a close relationship with both of them. Oh, that's nice. So great memories. Talking about memories, are there any things that you can tell us about your grandfather that is not printed in the history books that we can't find somewhere that only maybe his granddaughter would know, like foods he liked or TV shows or anything like that. Is there anything you can tell us about that, Jonna? He wasn't someone who watched TV. He was someone who read voraciously. He read all the time. And, and it's interesting because he always read with a dictionary by his side. And if he came across a word he didn't know, he would stop and look it up. And that's something he passed to all of us. We look up words when we read. Also, you know, when my grandmother passed away, uh, she'd been ill for, for quite a while with a stroke. My parents built a wing on their home in the Monterey area, and my grandfather moved in. And, and so my mother made his meal every night. And for dessert, he always had one scoop of vanilla ice cream with what he called chocolate gravy, chocolate on it. And it became a tradition. I mean, anyone who sat down to dinner with him, we almost always had an ice cream sundae for dessert. But he was very disciplined about food. I mean, he, he was very careful not to become heavy. I mean, he would weigh himself every morning. And if he was three pounds up, he would cut back until he got back to that, that ideal weight. He was a, a very disciplined person in, in everything like that. 
Do you know in his later years, did he, besides watching what he ate, did, is he somebody who did any types of exercise to stay fit? He walked. He walked uh, his whole life. In fact, it was kind of funny. Uh, when we were in high school, they lived in Santa Monica and we could walk through Pacific Palisades Park. And then there was a, a bridge that crossed the road down to the beach in Santa Monica. And as high schoolers, we had trouble keeping up with him. I mean, he, he just, he just was in amazing shape. He had a, a his office was in, in a building in, on Wilshire Boulevard in LA and he was on the seventh floor. He walked seven flights up and down twice a day. He just was very disciplined. He, yeah, he kept himself in decent shape. And I will tell you, other than really losing his hearing, he was quite deaf by the time he passed. He didn't lose his faculties until two weeks before he passed. He had a stroke and two weeks later we lost him, but he was sharp as a tack until then. Yeah, what a blessing to you and your family to have him not only there physically, but to be able to talk to you and tell you stories and sort of pour into you all the things that he had been through and knew and all those things. That is really a blessing. But now that we've talked somewhat about do a little central and your memories as a as a young girl in that household. I'd like for you to take us back and tell us a little bit about your grandfather who became general Jimmy Doolittle and can you start by telling us about his early days where he was born and grew up. My grandfather was born in Alameda, California. His father was a carpenter by trade. Uh, his mother, Rosa, was this teeny tiny little, little woman. And his father, almost very, very shortly after my grandfather was born, took off for Nome, Alaska. He followed the gold up there. Now, he never did much mining himself. Usually, he would grub stake people and build houses and things. But he never made it. So my, my grandfather really came from a, a very poor family. Not poor, but not economically blessed. We went up there. I was in Nome a few years ago and the house that he lived in, it was this wooden house and, and there was no plumbing. His mother would either have to melt snow or walk down to, to a stream to get water. It was a very, very rugged lifestyle. So there was one incident and it's something he impressed on all of us. To my grandfather, the worst thing you could do was lie. Honesty was expected. And some boys down there had defaced someone's property. They had said my grandfather was with them. Well, he wasn't. And his father didn't believe it. That was something that stuck with him. I mean, that's a story he told me himself. It stuck with him forever because if you're going to do something, then own up to it. I mean, it was, it was a pretty big deal. The other thing that really set with him when he was young was he was tiny. You know, as a man, he was barely five foot six. And as a little kid, he was this little bitty guy. And Nome, they, they went up in 1900. So he was barely three years old when they moved up to Nome. And he was this little tiny guy with curly hair. And so he became the target of bullies. Well, he learned to defend himself very, very early in life. And he still had that sense of humor. I mean, he got in trouble one time in school for drawing a picture of the principal that was um, not very flattering. 
but his punishment was he had to write on the bulletin board 25 times, Jimmy Doolittle is the smallest boy in school. And he said, and again, a story that he told me, he said he decided then that he was never going to let his stature stop him from doing the things he wanted to do in life. And it was an important part of him. And that did come from those rustic days in Nome. His mom, my great-grandmother, decided in about 1908 that Jimmy wasn't getting the education he needed in Nome. Uh, I think she and Frank were pretty much uh, going separate ways in their marriage. She came down to Los Angeles. My grandfather finished school at Manual Arts High School. He became a professional boxer in high school. He was that good. But what really settled him down and and settled him down his whole life became, I believe, his rudder in life was he met my grandmother in high school. She was a straight A student. He barely got C's. She was the class secretary. She was in the drama club. She came from a, a family that was fairly well off. And in fact, when her parents met my grandfather, they, you know, they were real pleased. He was this boxer and not a great student and all that so her uncle her favorite uncle offered to send her to law school now my grandmother was brilliant she actually had a a photographic memory she was incredible woman my grandfather didn't want to marry a lawyer well my grandmother didn't want to marry a boxer and they made a deal in high school and again this is the story my grandfather my grandmother told me they made a deal in high school that he would give up professional boxing, and she would give up the opportunity to go to law school. I think it worked out really well for both of them. As you found out as years went on, how much they supported each other and how much they cared about each other. Your grandfather began to take up another interest, and that was aviation. Obviously, aviation was in its infancy when your grandfather was a young man. So how did that come about? In 1910, There was an air meet in Dominguez Hills, California, and that wasn't that far from where he lived. He was fascinated with these flying machines, couldn't get enough of them. In fact, to the point of where he went home and dug up an old popular mechanics magazine that had a biplane in it, and he built his own airplane. Well, it didn't fly. He broke it, a, broke it a number of times. And then I think God put his hand in there and, and broke it the third time before he could uh, do something really, really dangerous. And then in 1917, when the United States became involved in World War I, he took the opportunity to become a flying cadet. Now, he had just finished his third year of college, did the first two in, in Los Angeles, his junior year at Berkeley. And he had the opportunity to become a pilot, and he never looked back. It was probably the second love of his life next to my grandmother. That's incredible. When you think of it, so 1917, so the Wright brothers' initial flight was 1903. So, you know, this is a brand new field. Now, you said he built his own plane. I failed on several attempts to put together a model airplane. (laughs) Not one I could get in and fly, that's for sure. Yeah, he did this biplane, and the first time he took it to this hill and and sort of jumped off and it wrapped itself up, and the next time he put it back together and he had somebody tow him in a car, which really 
broke it up and he figured he had enough left after that for a monoplane and built this airplane that probably would have killed him in a gust of wind, uh, took it out in a storm. You know, even he said it probably saved him a lot of grief. I think so. Jonna, can you tell me a bit more about your grandfather's service in the First World War? Where did he serve? He was super disappointed because he figured he'd train down in San Diego, California, and then go to Europe and do some dogfighting with with some of the pilots in that area. They kept him back in San Diego as an instructor pilot. I personally believe that's really what made him the pilot he was because I mean, he competed against other people, but more than that, he competed against himself. And he really took a great deal of pride in understanding airplanes and understanding flight and understanding its effect on pilots. And that stayed with him through his entire career. I mean, while he was um, in San Diego during World War I or right after World War I, first they sent him to a mechanic school. And he learned how to take an airplane apart and put it back together. And something he could have used in high school with that airplane he he tried to build there. After that, they then sent him to engineering school. Now, back in those days, engineers were pretty straight-laced guys. And pilots, pilots are like they are today, a little bit crazy. And so he knew as a pilot what he wanted. And he began to learn as an engineer how to make that happen. Based on those two years of schooling, the University of California, Berkeley awarded him his Bachelor of Science. He then went to MIT uh, on a program. We still have the program in the Air Force today. It's called AFIT. But back then it was the Army Air Corps sent him to MIT. They gave him two years to get his master's. The first year he got his master's. The second year he got a doctorate of science in aeronautical engineering the very first one that MIT ever issued. So I think that's the thing that most people don't know about him. He was highly educated and he really understood aviation, airplanes, pilots. He knew it. So that was one of his strengths. He wasn't just a hot dog stunt pilot. He was a well-educated man who knew about the science behind flying. Wow, that's interesting. Also, my son-in-law is a graduate of AFIT. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a great program. Oh, tremendous. I know he thoroughly enjoyed it. So your grandfather did pretty well for a former C student, didn't he? He did. The minute he realized how important education was, he was 100% in. Until he felt it had some use, it, it was just sort of something he had to do. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. Now, what about after World War I? What did life look like for your grandparents? You know, he stayed in the Army Air Corps. And I've always thought, you know, pilots more than anybody would appreciate this, I think. He had a really rough job. He had to make flying look fun. So he did a lot of records during that time period. And what they were trying to do was keep airplanes and Army Air Corps funded. So he had to keep aviation in front of the public eye. And that's what he set a a lot of his records, his first coast to coast, cities to cities, all kinds of records. The most famous of which, and we'll probably end up talking about that, is the first blind flight, which was the first person to take off, fly a prescribed course and land without being able to see, see the ground. 
So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Actually, this might be a good time to talk about that. Okay, yeah, well, I will tell you that I can remember asking my grandfather one day, hey, hey, Gramps, what's your greatest contribution? Because everybody hears about the Tokyo Raid, but very few people know that he was involved in not just flying that first plane flight, but developing the instruments. You see, back in the 20s and 30s, the biggest danger for a pilot was weather. If you got fogged out and you couldn't see the ground, you couldn't guarantee that you were going to get down safely. Mm. So you needed a way to be able to find airports or landing strips in weather. And so the, the project called the Full Flight Laboratory was funded by Harry Guggenheim. And it was pulled together by a Navy fellow, Jerry Lamb. And that was, I mean, that first instrument for blind flight was drawn on my grandmother's kitchen table between my grandfather and a guy named Elmer Sperry. And Elmer Sperry owned the Sperry Glass Company and, and was instrumental in, in developing these things. So it was truly what he felt was his biggest contribution because these instruments they developed ended up basically in today's airliners or the instruments that were developed from them are in today's airliners. So it's what he thought, it led to safety. It led to a great deal of safety in aviation as well as dependability. If you could land in weather, fly in weather, you had more freedom. That is a, a huge leap. I would imagine that was taken back in late twenties, I guess it was, wasn't it? Yeah. 29. Yeah. And I'm sure that uh, that was very valuable, particularly for the military. Yeah. I think if you talk to pilots, most pilots who know anything about history know about that instrument development. I understand that your grandfather also did his share of, I don't want to use the word, acrobatics, but that he was pretty good at taking that plane to the limits. Could you tell us a little bit about that? And there's so many stories. I don't even know where to start. When he was in flight school back in San Diego in the late teens, early 20s, he, you know, he was a bit of a character. That humor and that daredevil, you know, went through him throughout his whole life. He used to go flying with a buddy named John McCulloch. And when John would sit in, in the pilot seat, granddad would climb out on the wing and he would do acrobatics, something that started way back when he lived in Alaska. And he actually got in a lot of trouble one day because they were really low on fuel. And so John was trying to get it back in the cockpit. And instead of getting in the cockpit, my grandfather sat between the wheels and they landed with him sitting between the wheels. And what neither of them knew was the fact that there was this filmmaker, this guy named Cecil B. DeMille, who was filming at the field that day. And of course, there's always a bad guy in the story. And that was Burwell, the colonel that was in charge, uh, his commanding officer. And Burwell and DeMille were good friends. So when DeMille is showing Burwell the rushes that day from what they filmed, he saw an airplane land with, with somebody sitting between the wheels. He jumps up, opens his office door, and yells out, ground Doolittle. Well, DeMille kind of looks at me, goes, how do you know it's Doolittle? You can't even see the guy's face. And Burwell goes, nobody else is that stupid. That was reckless back then. But he got in trouble later 
for flying in weather that other people wouldn't fly in. And that really upset him because he made a point of knowing his limits. For example, he would fly these same routes over and over again. He said he couldn't even tell you how many cows were in the field. He flew it so often. So the label of daredevil didn't always fit. He evolved into someone who pushes limits, but he knew his limits. There aren't a lot of old, bold pilots. He lived till 96. So he had some grasp of his limits. Exactly. And that's uh, some of the things I've read in documentaries that when people were talking about your grandfather, that they had to remember that he was a well-educated man, well-versed in aeronautics. He wasn't just that guy who could push its plane, his plane to the limits. He knew his plane. He knew his plane. So you mentioned about this tablecloth of your grandmother's. Could you tell us more about the significance of that tablecloth? The day that he did the first blind flight, the, when he set the record, it was filmed by the press and there was also Guggenheim joined the full flight laboratory. And that night, my grandparents hosted a party in their home. And I think this typifies who the Doolittles were. If you had fame or great wealth or notoriety or any other you know, labels around you, you left them at the doorstep to their home. You didn't bring them across the threshold so that when you sat at their dinner table, you sat at a table of equals. You had Guggenheim sitting right next to my grandfather's mechanic, all an equal playing field. That night, my grandmother took out a, a pencil actually, and she had everybody at that dinner sign a tablecloth. Then she embroidered those names in black silk thread. After that, everyone who broke bread with them at their home signed that tablecloth. And the only name on it that wasn't signed at their table, although they, he'd been to their home for dinner, was Orwell Wright. So all of these people, and it was really kind of a who's who of aviation history, because it wasn't just the pilots that were there, and the mechanics that were there. It was the engineers and the designers and Shell Oil, the people who developed the fuels and, and things like that. It's really a who's who of aviation. Tinkoff now is at the Smithsonian. It's in a drawer, a climate controlled drawer. I keep trying to get them to bring it out. We have that discussion every time I go back there, but right now it's pretty well protected, but that's where it is. They said, you can see pictures. It's a pretty remarkable piece of history. I'm looking forward to the day that it's displayed because I would love to see that. That is so neat. So Orville Wright was at your grandparents' home? He'd been there. Yeah, you've got to think, remember now, aviation is this tiny little world at that time. I mean, even today, aviation is a very small community. Growing up in the Doolittle family, I met a lot of people. Some of them were pretty famous, but it wasn't that that pulled them together. What pulled them together was this absolute love of aviation and this camaraderie that exists even today. If you get to know the people who do air shows and things like that, there is this camaraderie and and this equal respect and love of aviation itself. So pretty, pretty cool, pretty cool way to grow up. It really, it really is. 
So let's walk down the path a little further now. Right at the beginning of World War II, right before Pearl Harbor was attacked, what was your grandfather doing? My grandfather then was with Shell Oil. Actually went, went to work in 1930 for Shell, but he went into the Army Air Corps Reserve at the same time. So he stayed in the service, but he started working for Shell. He had the same difficult job for Shell that he had in the Army Air Corps, which was keeping aviation in front of the public's attention to keep it, you know, actually to keep it funded for the Army Air Corps. But also during that time, he became very close friends with a, a gentleman by the name of Ernst Udet. Now, Ernst was a German pilot. He was an incredible pilot. Granddad said, you know, his equal easily. And they were close friends. So Gramps would go over to Germany and visit Ernst. Now, the first few times he went over there, he was given the opportunity to tour the aviation factories and actually see what the Germans were developing, what they had on the drawing boards, what they were developing in, in their industry. In 1939, he went back to Germany and the whole tenor of the country had changed. He was no longer welcome in the factories. It was dangerous for Ernst to spend time with him because by now Ernst was in the Luftwaffe and granddad was of course an American officer. So after that visit, which was cut short, Gramps came home and he went immediately to visit Hap Arnold. Now, General Arnold was one of his very close friends. And he told Arnold, he said, the tenor in Germany is one of eminent war. He said, there is absolutely no way that we will be able to stay out of it. We're gonna be pulled into it. He offered to leave Shell and go back into uniform. General Arnold said, I can't take you till July. So July of 1940, my grandfather was back in uniform and his job was, he went up to Detroit and his job was to force a marriage between the auto industry and the aviation industry to begin tooling up for what was inevitably going to be war. Mm. Quick note on Udet, Ernst Udet was not a fan of Hitler and was pretty outspoken about it and actually was maybe ordered to commit suicide. Oh, no. So uh, he was he was really a pretty good guy. Oh, and he was a friend of your grandfather's. They were super close friends. My dad used to say, my dad was also a pilot. And my dad used to say, Ernst could do things in airplanes that were impossible. And my dad knew because he tried them. So, <laughs> <laughs> it was, oh, it was pretty, God. he could flip his plane over upside down and pick a handkerchief up off an airfield. He was pretty, pretty remarkable pilot and a, and a very close friend, kind of a crazy guy, but that can be pilots a little bit. Yeah. Wow. That's tragic though, that, uh, that happened to him. Yeah. So we know that in 1941 and on December 7th, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Tell us about your grandfather's important role in responding to the Japanese attack. You know, there's a lot of people that talk about the Doolittle Raid, and there's a lot of myths that surround it. You see, what really happened was, you know, my grandfather's given credit as the person who came up with the idea. Not true. What happened was an, a submariner, a Navy captain by the name of Captain Lowe, was flying over a training field where there was an outline of aircraft carrier. And as the shadow passed over, of his plane passed over that field, he wondered if we couldn't take a land-based bomber 
off an aircraft carrier. He elevated it up the chain of command in the Navy, got to Admiral King. Admiral King called General Arnold and General Arnold called in my grandfather, not because he was a hot dog pilot, but because of that education thing, you know, that doctorate uh, of science and aeronautical engineering. So my grandfather was given the assignment. He came up with the B-25, got to give credit, same airplane that the Navy came up with because it really was the only airplane that could take off the aircraft carrier. But it really wasn't his idea. But to speak a moment to the raid itself, it really was kind of unique for a number of ways. And I think one of the most important was the fact that it was the first joint operation between the Army Air Corps and the Navy. They had this mission to retaliate against Japan for the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Think about it. This occurred in April of 1942, barely four months after the attack on Pearl Harbor. And they were successful in taking 16 land-based bombers off an aircraft carrier, hitting their targets and getting away. Wow. Not a single one was shot down. Not a single one was shot down. I would imagine. So what you're saying is that when Pearl Harbor was bombed and the idea was thought of by somebody else, your grandfather was brought into it. Was it because he had such a knowledge then of what planes were capable of doing? Absolutely. And it was really funny. If you'd had the chance to know him, one of the things that would come off right away was how humble he was as they assembled these squadrons of B-25 pilots and they began to train them to do an aircraft carrier takeoff, he required that he himself qualify as a pilot. He didn't just assume that he could be one of the lead pilots. He took the same test basically that all of those pilots had to accomplish. And that's how he led. Everything he did, he was willing to do himself. Everything he asked of one of his men was something that he was personally willing to do. That's a real leader, an absolute real leader. You know, it's funny. I can remember a, a kid asking me one time, this one of the students, well, why didn't they have better trained guys, you know, in the B-25s? And I said, because these were the only guys in B-25s. It was a brand new program. Well, brand new aircraft, brand new aircraft too. Now, I think I just wanted to back up just a drop and talk about Pearl Harbor had done some severe damage to our Pacific fleet and our aircraft carriers were very precious to us. We didn't want to risk them too much because we needed them. So there was a lot at stake in this mission. So if you could tell us kind of how that mission rolled out and what was involved? Okay, first of all, the actual mission came about when Roosevelt called his chiefs of staff together barely five days after the attack on Pearl Harbor and said, I want to bomb Japan. Find a way for us to retaliate. Then, of course, the Navy story came into play. But, you know, this is going to surprise you. They were a little afraid of leaks in the White House. So the actual mission itself, not even the president was briefed. Almost all of the men who flew the mission were kept in the dark about it. 
They knew they had volunteered for a dangerous mission. They knew that there was a good chance they wouldn't come home, but they didn't know where they were going or what they were doing. So it was a top secret mission the entire time. And they couldn't tell their wives or anything where they were going. So as they came across the country and loaded up on the aircraft carrier in Alameda, California. Now they trained in Florida mm -hmm. at Eglin Field. So when they, they kind of hedge hopped, very low flight all across, uh, across the country. And they loaded up on the aircraft carrier in um, Alameda. The Navy guys, now this is a brand new ship. They have no idea where they're going. So there's this competition between the Army and Navy on the ship. And I will have to tell you that the Navy guys played poker better than the Air, Army Air Corps guys. And there was quite a rivalry. But it was after they pulled out of the harbor. Now, the Navy guys were upset because they thought they were just delivering this aircraft to some island or something. They were really upset that they were going to just be a bus or cargo transport. After they got out of the harbor, it was announced that this task was bound for Tokyo. And it drew the Army and the Navy together in a way it had never been drawn together before. Here they were going to be the first strike against the islands of Japan, and they were doing it together. Neither could have done it without the other. Right. So it was a pretty special thing. Now, as they headed toward Japan, what made it a more dangerous mission was that they were spotted by a picket boat. And there'd always been this agreement that if they were spotted, they would do one of three things. If they were close to a base, that could accept the bombers, the bombers would take off and go land on the base. If they were close enough to the islands of Japan, they would start their mission early. If they were between those two spots and couldn't go anywhere, they would simply push the aircraft overboard and bring the fighters up. Because as you said, think about it, four months earlier, our Pacific fleet has been decimated in Pearl Harbor. We have two aircraft carriers, and a fairly decent sized task force, we couldn't afford to lose them. Right. So when they were spotted early, they decided to take off. They knew that they didn't have enough fuel, that they, they actually added, and they couldn't use jerry cans. They had kitchen cans that were for oil. They had 10 cans per plane that were filled with fuel to give them that extra boost to try to get as close to the shore of China as possible. So when they took off, they knew that they didn't have enough fuel to safely land, but they decided to do the mission anyway. Now, all of the planes either ditched off the coast of China or they bailed out with the exception of one plane that actually went to Russia. Okay, what happened to that plane? That's actually kind of a funny story. That plane was the story is that it was burning fuel too richly and that they were there was absolutely no way that they were going to make it even to the coast of China and decided to land in Russia. Now, there's always been some question because the pilot and co-pilot of that plane spoke Russian. They were Army Air Corps intelligence and the navigator, the Nolan Herndon, before he passed, actually asked me if they were he said he asked my grandfather if they were ordered to go to 
to Russia. And my grandfather's comment to him was, I never gave that order. But what happened to that plane was it was interned. The plane was confiscated. The men were held in confinement, basically, until it took about, I think it was 13, 14 months before they, quote, escaped. Uh, Funny story, the Russians charged us room and board, which every month the bill would come and granddad would say, yeah, go ahead and pay it. Um, The reason that we couldn't land in Russia, even though they were an ally, is Russia had a neutrality pact with Japan and they couldn't risk opening another front. They already had too many things going. So that's the official story. But there's always been the question. Nolan always believed that they were sent there to test the Russians' loyalty. Wow, maybe we'll find out someday the true story. I doubt it. I doubt that that would ever be a a story that ever had any reporting. (laughs) So how many total airmen were on the Tokyo mission or the Doolittle mission? There were 80, 80 guys, 16 airplane, 80 men. Now, another thing is this was the, now it's early in the war. And even though Gramps had been in World War I, this was the first combat mission for any of them, any of the guys, including Gramps. Yeah, that's right. And what a big mission it was. Can you tell me what I would like you to sort of summarize in total? How many of the men who went on the mission, the 80 men, actually returned back to the United States safely? Well, that's a, that's a longer story. Let me just summarize the effect of the mission itself. Sure. Because some of the guys stayed on in China and flew the hump, and two of those crews went down later during the war. But the raid itself, out of the airplanes, three died that night. Two died when they ditched in the sea. They drowned. One died when he bailed out. They don't know if the parachute didn't open or if, if he hit the plane. Eight were captured by the Japanese. Of those eight, three were executed by firing squad. One actually was basically starved to death. Four of them came home. In fact, I can throw in a couple of really great books here. Dawn wrote the book called Four Came Home. It is the story of what those eight men went through and the brutality of being a prisoner in the Japanese prison. There's another book on the Russians. One of the planes went to Russia. That crew, as I said, was in turn. Bob Emmons, the co-pilot, wrote a book called Guests of the Kremlin. It's kind of hard to get. You might have to find an old copy. But it tells about their flight and their experience and what it was like being interned in Russia. All of the rest of them made it home or made it out of China. Like I said, some of the crew stayed and flew the hump. Uh, my grandfather's co-pilot, Dick Cole, flew the hump with the Army Air Corps. But yeah, it's a pretty exciting mission. The outcome of the mission is kind of interesting because for the United States, at that point, we'd had nothing but failures. We had nothing but losses. It was our first win. So it was a great morale booster for the United States. It did exactly the opposite for the Japanese. The Japanese had always been told that they were invulnerable, that no one could touch them, that the divine winds protected the islands. Well, those divine winds actually turned into tailwinds that pushed our aircraft to the coast of China. Without those tailwinds, 
we would have lost a lot more of our airmen. The third thing it did, and probably the biggest impact, was it changed how the Japanese fought the war. They went from offensive to defensive, and they pulled a lot of their troops out of China to protect the homeland. And that's probably our biggest impact on China and why the Chinese revere at that time the Americans the way they did. So I would imagine this was a big morale booster for the United States. You know, I can't help but think about George Washington's crossing the Delaware and uh, the Battle of Trenton. It wasn't that it was a huge military victory, but it was a huge morale victory, one that Washington needed to hold on to his army at that time. But your granddad and the raid really helped the United States feel like, you know, we're, we're back on the offense again. We've taken all these, these hits and all these losses, and now we're giving it back to you. So watch out. It did. It boosted our morale and it gave us confidence. It also set up Midway, which was considered the turning point in the war. Right. You know, so it helped that and breaking the Japanese code set up, set up Midway. Right. Now, just real kind of briefly, if you can possibly make it brief, is what happened to your grandfather's plane on the raid? Oh, it's in pieces on a hillside in China. There's a very, very poor picture of him sitting on the wing of that plane. He's up there with Paul Leonard, who is his, uh, his crew chief. He's, he's about as down as anybody can be. This is his first combat mission. He is positive that they haven't been able to save any planes. He figures all of the planes are gone. He actually thinks he might get court-martialed because the mission in his mind is a complete failure. And as a conversation he told me that he had with Paul Leonard, Paul said, you know, boss, they're going to make you a general. And granddad kind of laughed. He said, they're going to take my airplane away. Mm. And he goes, no, boss, they're going to give you the Medal of Honor. And granddad kind of shook his head and laughed. He said, I'll be lucky to get a paid vacation in Leavenworth. And then, he, then Paul said to him, and granddad said, it's the highest compliment he ever had in his life because Here's this airplane in pieces. The mission is a failure in his eyes. He, he doesn't know if his men are alive or dead. He knows only where his crew is. And Paul says to him, they're going to give you another plane and I want to fly with you. Aww. And granddad, you know, the Raiders became my grandparents' boys. Uh, they were my, basically my uncles growing up. There was a, an extremely close bond. And Paul did fly with them. He ended up with, with him in Algiers and was killed protecting the airplane. And my grandfather found him. And he said it was like losing a son, oh. which he did lose a son. So there's a very, very special bond between Gramps and his boys. When your grandfather, I guess he parachuted out of his plane with his crew? Oh, yeah. Pilot, last one to go. They all bailed. And he was able to find friendly Chinese forces, was he? They were really lucky. Um, this is something that most people don't know, and it's really beginning to surface now. There was an underground in China that basically moved our airmen to safety. They weren't there for the Raiders. They were there for the Flying Tigers. They were there for Chenault's group. And it's really just coming to surface 
how many Chinese lost their lives basically because the retribution of Japan against China, the Japanese slaughtered around 250,000 men, women, and children if they thought they had any contact with the raiders or any contact with anyone who was near the raiders. So they paid a, a very grave, grave price. But there were a lot of Chinese who moved these raiders to safety and moved flying tigers to safety. Yes. So very heroic on their part because the Japanese were pretty brutal. Yeah. Just one aside, Jana, for our listeners, who were the flying tigers that you refer to? Flying tigers were a group that flew for Chenault. They flew the hump, a transport thing, and they ended up being called the aluminum highway. It was so dangerous. We lost so many airplanes and so many crews on that old mission. They were there really before the war. They were early, early people. And these were American forces? American flyers. American flyers. American. And based, in, based in China? Yes, in Burma. Now, Jana, your grandfather thought the mission was a failure, that uh, he lost his plane. He wasn't even sure initially how many of his crew survived. But he was actually awarded the Medal of Honor for his involvement in the Tokyo Raid. Can you tell us about that and what he thought about it? Well, I can tell you that that first night he, or after the first night, that first full day there, he learned the whereabouts of his five, the five on his crew. They were pulled together, but he didn't know where any of the other crews were. He didn't leave China until he got as much information as possible about the crews and about his men. He was ordered back to the United States, and I told you he and Hap Arnold were very close friends, and they had um, quite a discussion over the medal because General Arnold and General Marshall were telling Gramps that he was getting the Medal of Honor, and he felt, again, that the mission wasn't, it wasn't a success at that point in his mind. He felt like it cheapened the medal, and he had quite a, quite a pushback, but they outranked him. And so he was awarded the medal from President Roosevelt. When he accepted that medal, he told the president that he accepted it on behalf of every single one of his men. Yeah. Uh, the, the medal, which is at the University of Texas in Dallas, I think they loaned it out so it goes other places, but that's where it's been placed in the Doolittle archives, belongs to every single one of the Doolittle Raiders. When he walked out of the room, he turned to General Arnold and General Marshall and said, I will spend the rest of my life trying to earn it. Aww. So he felt, he felt very honored. But like so many people who serve in the military, he felt like he was just doing his job. He didn't do anything special. And you can talk to anybody who's received the medal and they will tell you, I just did my job. It's the guys that didn't come home that deserve it. So it's quite an honor but he pushed back pretty hard. I bet he did. And because he, he looked at those boys as his, his kids, like they were yeah. sons. They and used to call him the old man and they used to call her Mama Joe. <laughs> he was the old man. What was he, like 46, I think, when he yeah. flew that mission? Yeah, that's yeah. getting young. 
<laughs> sounds young to me. I don't know about you, John. It sounds young to me. It sounds way young to me. One aside on his humility, it really struck me. You had told me this on a previous uh, time we spoke, that there was a time where there was a, I don't know, it was one of the Raiders or somebody that your grandfather served with who was waiting in line to clean out his mess kit. Could you tell us about that? This, this is a letter I got. There was a gentleman after the, my book came out, there was a gentleman who wrote, and he said, I got to meet your grandfather in Okinawa. Now, when the war ended in Europe, my grandfather took part of the 8th Air Force over to Okinawa. In Okinawa, it was a tent base, basically, and lots and lots of rain, so it was just tents and mud. And there was one large tent that housed the mess hall. And granted, there outside of this tent was a, a barrel and a scrub brush, and you washed your mess kit. And this guy said he was standing in line or washing his mess kit, turned to hand the brush to the guy standing behind him. So there was your grandfather, three stars on his shoulder, waiting his own turn to wash his own mess kit. I think that's the perfect way to describe who he was. He didn't expect special treatment. He was one of the guys. A real leader. As you mentioned about the, the young pilot who said, I would fly with you again. I mean, that's the ultimate compliment because they had that much confidence in his leadership, almost like, like a dad, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Jana, after the, the raid on Tokyo, your grandfather continued in leadership, greater leadership roles during World War II. And could you tell us just briefly about what those roles were? There's a, a little funny story that's a precursor of it. General Eisenhower, when uh, Marshall and Arnold went to Eisenhower and said, hey, how would you like to have Doolittle on your staff? He goes, no, because he's thinking Doolittle is this hot dog pilot that does risky things and doesn't really know much about Gramps. He said, no, I want Acre, Spots, uh, or Frank. And they said, well, you can have anybody you want, but we think you should take Doolittle. And they outranked him. So Eisenhower took Gramps. And his first job really was to form and command the 12th Air Force in North Africa. A lot of people don't realize he kind of got in trouble commanding the fourth because granddad as a young officer actually flew for Billy Mitchell. And he believed that the Air Force should use its power in a strategic way. And at this point in time, the Army Air Corps was pretty much used as tactical to protect protect the ground troops. So he started using the Air Force in a strategic way. And they took it away from him, divided it in half. I don't know who they gave the tactical force to, but they gave Randad the strategic force. And he must approve something because his next assignment was the Mediterranean and it was the 15th Air Force. It was a strategic Air Force. And he formed and commanded that. So he kind of proved air power at that particular point in time or started to prove air power. After that, one day they were in England and Eisenhower was looking for Gramps, couldn't find him any place. And somebody said, oh, Doolittle, he's up in a Spitfire. So Eisenhower got on the radio and said, you know, Jimmy, I'm going to give you a choice. I can bust you back to Lieutenant. You can stay here and fly Spitfires or you can land and I'll give you the 8th Air Force. And he landed. <laughs> 
go figure. <laughs> Knowing your grandfather, you probably had to think about that for a few minutes. <laughs> I think he knew as the commander of the eighth, he could still fly the Spitfire. I think so. Which, which uh, he actually, it wasn't a Spitfire, it was a Mustang. He was actually flying over the beaches of Normandy in a Mustang and was the first to report back to headquarters on the toll that was being taken by our troops on the ground. Wow, because I know the Spitfire was a, was a British plane that was highly yeah. successful during the Battle of Britain. So you mentioned about the, the Raiders and they became uh, your grandparents' kids almost, part of the family. So Jonna, as the war ended and your grandfather continued his military career, you mentioned that the Raiders became part of your grandparents' family almost, like they're almost like their sons. Can you tell us about your relationship with those Raiders? Because I, as a, as a member of the family yourself, did they almost become like uncles to you? They were incredibly special, especially the last few years. Oh God, there's so many stories about different, different Raiders. I was actually adopted by one of them. Roy and Kay Stork didn't have kids of their own and they figured, well, I, I should be their kids. So oh. they would tell my parents, you know, Jonna's, John is mine. But in the later years, I did start doing a lot of programs, particularly with Tom Griffin, who was uh, a navigator and just this incredible human being. But I mean, just great stories. I, I can remember as a little girl, Ski York used to tell me we'd, they'd be all standing around talking and and Ski, who was the pilot of the, the plane that ended up in Russia, would look at me and he'd go, Jonna, this is not a story for little girls. And so I would go around the wall so I could hear the story. But my last event with one of the Raiders was about three years ago, I guess, with Dick Cole, my grandfather's co-pilot. And we were in Oshkosh and Dick was 101, 102, something like that. Sharp as a tech, just this amazing man. Um, so to have had them in, in our lives this many years, I'm just grateful. You know, just grateful. You uh, you were able to accompany them to different events sometimes. I understand you went to Pearl Harbor once with at least one or more of the Raiders. I went one year, actually kind of a funny story. I was with them, with Dick and Tom in Wisconsin, I think it was. And a lot of times I would travel with my dad and they'd go, well, John, where's your dad? And I go, my dad's in Alaska. He spends a summer in Alaska with my mom. And Dick looks at me, he goes, I wanna to go to Alaska. And I go, that I could probably arrange. And so I look at him and I go, you wanna go anywhere else? He goes, yeah, I wanna to go to Hawaii. I go, I don't know anybody in Hawaii. I said, I don't, you know, I don't know if I can do that. So we did go to Alaska. My mom, dad, and Dick and Tom, and I all, all went up to Alaska to do, do an event up there. And then they were at my house and at the time I'm, well, I'm still living in Southern California and they were at the house and they were sitting in the living room and I get this phone call from the museum on Fort Island. And Katie, the gal who was running the program said, you know, introduced herself, said who she was and wondered if I would come to Hawaii and do a talk on my book. And I go, yeah, I'd be happy to. I said, but can I get right back to you? And I 
get off the phone and I go out in the living room and I go to Dick. I go, you still want to go to Hawaii? And he goes, yeah, I'd love to go to Hawaii. So I call her back and I go, hey, KT. I said, this is Joanna. Can I bring my boyfriend? And she's dead silent. I said, before you make up your mind, let me tell you who I'm talking about. And I said, Dick Cole. And of course, they, they were thrilled. So I went that year with Dick. And then the next year, I was invited back. Tom Griffin went. Just such incredible memories. Just incredible, fun, fun times. Donna, you were part of history at a front row seat to history with these folks that you knew, your grandparents, your quote unquote uncles uh, from the raid and to know them personally. What an experience and what a privilege. I was totally honored. I mean, I can't, there aren't words to say how fortunate I was to say, to have a front row seat, not to be a part of it, but to have a front row seat. I mean, as we've talked about before, my mission is to collect stories or to nag people into recording stories. And I guess one of the greatest people I've ever met was Johnny Allison, who was an Air Force general. And I've got hours of tapes of just sitting with Johnny. And what an amazing opportunity for me. I never stopped counting my blessings. You and I have spoken a little bit about that in our lifetime, we known so many we were well, I know I was raised by two World War II veterans. My dad was at West Point during the war. He then served in Korea, Vietnam, and he was one of those guys with a nuclear warhead in the front of his, his uh, B-52. He served on his own. He served, and your uncle, your dad's brother, was in the Second World War, I understand, as he well. He was with the, the Ninth Air Force in England. Right, and of course, your grandpa. Now... Towards the end of your grandfather's life, I know your grandmother passed, I think, in 1988, if I saw correctly mm-hmm. in the book, and that, but before she passed, your grandfather was dedicated to being with her and taking care of her. Can you tell us about that? You know, it was funny. My, my grandfather stayed extremely active, and he was still traveling most of the time when my grandmother suffered a massive stroke that robbed her of the ability to speak. It robbed her of the ability to walk. And my grandfather quit traveling. As I've said, I adored my grandmother. I worshiped my grandmother. And I lived in Southern California. They were up in Carmel. And I would make that drive up there at least twice a month. And I knew if I wanted to see my grandfather, he'd be sitting next to my grandmother holding her hand. They went back for him to receive his fourth star. She went with him. The only time he ever left her and and she couldn't go was when he received the Medal of Freedom. You don't know how how valuable something is to you, how much it means until you lose it or you're faced with, with losing it. And like I said, if you wanted to see him, he was holding her hand. Oh. What a touching memory, him holding her hand. She actually passed on their 71st wedding anniversary. They were married 71 years. 71 years. And, and what rich, full, interesting lives that they led. That's quite a legacy. <laughs> Somebody once asked me, well, do you think your grandmother minded not becoming a lawyer? I said, no, I think she had her hands full. 
I think <laughs> like I it. think she was pretty pleased with their life. Yeah. So when did your grandfather pass away? In 1993. 1993. And he hadn't been ill long from what I read. Two weeks. Two weeks. As soon as the stroke hit, I headed up to Monterey to be with him. And, you know, he was pretty much not really a coma, but kind of a comatose state. And I remember sitting in the bedroom with him and I'm on one side of his bed and my cousin Jimmy, who's named for my grandfather and is this amazing pilot in his own right, also Vietnam vet. We're sitting there and we're just talking. We're, we have memories. We're talking about family memories. And I remember a funny story and my grandfather started to laugh. And so to know that he knew we were there. He was listening. Oh, you loved your grandpa. Well, your grandpa was an amazing man. And I tell you, I think one of my hopes is to, with this podcast, is to get people more familiar about who Jimmy Doolittle was. Some of the younger people out there who may not know the whole story. You know, I grew up hearing about him because my, of my parents and my grandfather, who was, he was in the Royal Air Force, actually, and so was my mom. People hear about things maybe from a, from a movie here and there, but who was the real person? What were they like? And what were they like, not just as a military person, but what were they like as a grandfather and uh, a person you could uh, eat ice cream with chocolate gravy on it yeah. <laughs> with? But I wanted to ask you, when did the last Raider pass away? Was it Dick Cole? Dick Cole about a year ago, almost, gosh, pushing two years now. At 103. Oh, how did that feel when you found out that he passed? Like an end of an era? Yeah. But the fact that Dick never slowed down, and, and he, that's really because of his daughter, Cindy. His daughter, Cindy, she made it possible for him to continue traveling, to continue speaking, to continue living a full life. She really did bring a quality to his life. And those of us who spent time with our parents, I mean, when my dad was diagnosed with cancer, I moved up and was with him. It's a blessing to have that time. I mean, it changes your life because you go from being father daughter to being friends. And, and I'm pretty sure that happened with Cindy. So she's, I would guess is grateful for every minute. But what she did really did give him a full, full life in those last years. That's terrific. Yes, indeed. John, I'm going to ask you this question. How has your life been impacted, the person you are today, by having James Doolittle as your grandfather? I never stopped counting my blessings for having such an incredible role model. But I mean, it wasn't just him. It was my grandmother and my parents. You're given opportunities in life. I mean, being his granddaughter has definitely opened doors and given opportunities. But I hope that I can turn those opportunities into doing something worthwhile. My grandfather had this philosophy that 
the purpose in life is to make the world a better place than you found it. And I hope that the little that I do will make the world a little bit better. I'm blessed. Oh, thank you so much for that. I think you, you partially answered my next question with your grandfather's quote. What do you believe your grandfather would have wanted his legacy to be? In all honesty, I don't think that he thought about life that way. I don't think he, he wrote an autobiography basically because it was requested that he do so to keep history straight because there are people who do want to revise history. And I know my parents and, and there were people who encouraged him, but I can remember him saying, only a pompous ass writes his own autobiography. <laughs> and, and, and he just, I think he just thought about the next thing he was gonna do. I don't think he thought about a legacy. I, I don't think that's what motivated him in any way. He just kept doing the best he could do. I mean, he continued to write letters. People would write to him and he had a, a you know, Celeste Ventura who was like his assistant he wrote letters up until the last two weeks of his, of his life, giving every way that he could. He taught us to have a moral compass. And I think it was that moral compass that led his life. Thank you. I think this has been a really wonderful interview. I, I am just fascinated by this story about your grandparents, uh, early aviation, a significant uh, World War II raid that, but there's been movies made about it, right? What was the famous movie back in the 40s? What was the name of the movie? 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, Ted Lawson's story. And it is the most accurate of any movie made about the raid. And I have heard that and I have read that. So I'm going to find it on the movie channel or I'm going to buy it somewhere to watch it because I have heard I've heard from so many different sources. I've heard lectures from authors and uh, like yourself saying that it is the most accurate. I'm going to definitely watch it. But what are you up to with, I know you've, you've written this fabulous book, Calculated Risk, The Extraordinary Life of Jimmy Doolittle, Aviation Pioneer and World War II Hero. But you have written another book, right? I have another book called Just Do My Job. It's 19 stories from World War II. It's just not the, the warriors. It's also a war bride and a gal with the USO and somebody with the OSI. My goal, not just with that book, but my goal, I consider myself a nag. I like to nag people into telling their stories. You know, when I first wrote Calculated Risk, the goal was to keep my grandfather's history straight. It was right after the movie Pearl Harbor. And, and I wanted you to know the grandfather that I grew up with, not just what history tells you, but who he was. But the very first lecture I ever gave, I was, was in Costa Mesa at a library and a guy from a World War II vet came up to talk to me. And a guy from Desert Storm, a vet from Desert Storm came up to talk to me and all of a sudden they started talking to each other and I got to be that fly on the wall. And I realized there are 
millions of stories that have never been told. And every single one of those stories is a thread in the fabric that makes this country the country that it is. And that those stories are just as important as my grandfather's. So what started out to protect him or protect them became a mission to encourage as as many people as possible to record their stories, to share their history, not just warriors, but all the people who've given so much to this country. And unless we realize the sacrifices, unless we record and listen to and learn from the sacrifices of those who purchased our freedom, Mm. you know, with their blood, sweat and tears, we can't begin to appreciate how fortunate we are to live in this country. You are so right. I couldn't be more in agreement with you, Jonna. How can people find out more about you and how they can find out more about reading some of the stories and some of the information that might be out there for people to research on World War II and stories about the people that you speak about who are part of that whole effort? Rather than just really address that so much, let me tell people about the Veterans History Project through the Library of Congress. Now, the Veterans History Project, you can go to their website and you can download a field kit that tells you how to record a history. Now, they work exclusively on veterans, but it's a really good place to start. They are so organized. It is the perfect place to go and research about people in history because they make all of these archives that they've built up available to the public. It's an organization that we should do everything we possibly can to support because they are just reaching out all over. There's also a museum up in Nampa, Idaho, the Warhawk Air Museum run by John and Sue Paul. They have an extraordinary uh, veterans history project. They've done, I believe over 2000 histories now. That's a place where you can access some of these firsthand pieces of history. Amazing job that they have done. Fantastic. Well, I am gonna be checking these things out and I hope our listeners do as well because this is so important. As we've discussed before, there's not many World War II vets left out there today. The information, the stories that are so important about all the people, men and women who are involved one way or another with that terrible war, uh, World War II. I mean, it was, uh, you and I think of it as um, more recent history, perhaps, but for many other people, younger people who would think, well, what's it about and how can I learn more about it? That's the key. I want to thank you so much, Jonna. You've been a wonderful guest. You are so knowledgeable and giving us uh, boy, military strategy and personal stories about your grandparents. It has just been a wonderful experience interviewing you. And I wish you all the best in you know, your mission to bring these stories to life and, and have people record these stories for future generations. Well, thank you, James. And keep doing what you're doing because you're keeping the stories alive. You're keeping history alive. Thanks, John. And have a great day. You too. So for all of our listeners, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. 
Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.